you may be around the world and thank you for your company on truth2u.org. That's truth number two, letter u.org. Joining me is the Director of Education and Counseling for Jews for Judaism in Canada. The website is JewsForJudaism.ca. That's JewsForJudaism.ca. Welcome back to the program, Rabbi Michael Skobach. Shalom, shalom, Jono, and again, a real pleasure to be here with you. This is the first time you and I have spoken in 2015. <laughs> That's true. You're the first time I, you're the first person I've spoken to in 2015. <laughs> oh, grand! There you go, beautiful. And we are, we are, of course, uh, continuing on in our investigation of the alleged 365 messianic prophecies in the Tanakh that Jesus supposedly fulfilled in the New Testament. We are going by the uh, the now uh, the new Revised Standard Version, which uh, Carmen of the RefinersFire.org uh, supplied for us. And thank you for that, Carmen. That's going to streamline things, streamline things a little bit for us. And before we get there, a comment. Boy, we got a lot of comments. Thank you to everybody who uh, left comments on Facebook, left comments on the website. They're most welcome. And this one here, I just wanted to pick out. I thought it was just grand. It's from someone called Re, or Re, R-E. <laughs> And it says, uh, hi, Jono and Rabbi uh, Skoback. I just wanted to thank you for this study. It has been really useful to me. I'm an ex-Christian, but my wife and my friends are all messianic. And they always try to prove you sure. And so far, this study has given me a lot of general ideas as to how best answer them. I know my answer is never good enough for a Christian to listen. That would be denying their God. But for me to have no answer, that would give validity to their arguments. So continue the good work and God bless. Thank you. Ray? Yeah, I think he I should that's be, how you uh, it. I think he should not uh, underestimate the potential power of these things, even to people who he assumes are impervious. I think that people might put up a front that um, they're unwilling to, to admit uh, on the, at this, on the moment that uh, these ideas are getting through, but um, we're always hearing from people who will tell us, you know, uh, after the fact, you know, these ideas and, and the the, um, the responses to these alleged messianic prophecies always did weigh heavily on heavily on their minds, and hmm. uh, yeah, I wouldn't discount their. They're, they're it's not unusual. Potency. It's not unusual for people to go away and in the uh, the quiet of the night to, uh, or even in the shower, <laughs> to think <laughs> of something that someone said during the day. And uh, you had an experience like that. What 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 came to you? You know the other what? I have, I have to admit that I always come up with things in the shower. I come up with great ideas in the shower. So the shower is the place for good solid thinking. I think. I think it it brings out something in me. It must be the water. Water is always symbolic of Torah. Sometimes it, that, that's where things come to me. So, it's the place of grand ideas. <laughs> some people get hit on the head with an apple, and some people get <laughs> hit on the head with the pitter-patter of the shower. Yeah, um, I prefer that. We were speaking a few times already about this idea, and it's really it's probably the common theme of, I would say, 90%, if at least 90% of, these, uh, of, of the passages on this list which uh, Carmen and others described as uh, connections or associations mm. that uh, they find in the Tanakh with Yeshua, with Jesus. Mm. And uh, so one of the things, because we were speaking last around Hanukkah time, um, you know, in the, in the <coughs> Jewish uh, Torah readings every year in the synagogue, uh, the Hanukkah holiday comes out at the same time where we read about the story of Joseph. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and as Joseph becomes an associate of Pharaoh and the viceroy of Egypt, 
And uh, I was thinking about the following, that if you go through classical rabbinic literature, one of the things they love to do is to find connections or hints or associations Mm -hmm. to the Hanukkah holiday in the Torah itself. Now, we know that Hanukkah as a holiday, as an event, actually isn't even biblical. It comes up after the conclusion of the canon. Um, But once we had this amazing holiday called Hanukkah, uh, which some people think is actually even mentioned in the Gospels, I think it's in the beginning, somewhere around chapter 10 or 12. Festival of Lights. Yeah, Mm -hmm. Festival of Dedication, mentioned in John, um, which I think it comes out in the winter there. So uh, the rabbis were very fond of finding these connections or hints to Hanukkah in the Torah. Um, mm-hmm. I'll just share three. I mean, there are hundreds of them that were found. Um, one is if you look at the uh, uh, dreams of Pharaoh. So Pharaoh first has a dream where these runty, runny cows uh, eat or consume these large, healthy, plump cows. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then he has the scrawny, unhealthy ears of corn that are consuming the large, uh, vibrant, healthy um, Mm -hmm. ears of corn. So people have said, well, this seems very similar to the Hanukkah story where this small, uh, unprofessional army of old rabbis are able to vanquish the strong, large Syrian army, professional army. So they see this association here, and the same thing with the small amount of oil that manages to burn for eight days. So people actually found that as a connection as an association, a hint that the story of Joseph in Egypt sort of prefigures or forecasts or connects to this holiday of Hanukkah. Another Mm -hmm. hint they found was in the beginning of the Bible, the 25th word of the Torah is the word or, which means light. Mm We know that Hanukkah comes out, this holiday falls out on the 25th day of the month. So here you have Hanukkah coming on the 25th day of the month. And the 25th word of the Bible is or, light, and Hanukkah is the holiday of light. We light the, 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 the Hanukkah. Mm-hmm. And then they, they find a fascinating one where in the book of Numbers, chapter 33, verse 29, we see that when the Israelites left Egypt, we know that they encamped at various places in the desert. And the 25th place of encampment was a place called Hashmonah. And the, the, the Jewish family that was victorious in the Hanukkah story uh, were the Hashmonaim. Mm. So they find here, again, the, the holiday comes out on the 25th day of the month, and uh, it was a victory by the Hashmonaim. And here we see the 25th encampment in the desert was the place called Hashmona. Now, these are, again, once we have the holiday of Hanukkah, you can go back to the Bible and find hundreds of these associations or connections with the Bible but the question is, would anyone, any Christian say, yeah, if you go through the Bible carefully enough, you'll find that it forecasts clearly the coming of the holiday of Hanukkah. I don't think that anyone would allow for that kind of movement going from the, the Bible towards the holiday. I think that mm. we can see that these connections are possible only backwards, meaning once you have your uh, conclusion, once you have your concept that you are committed to, you can then go back to the Bible and find what you feel are associations or connections. And the problem is that the Christian uh, starting point is their belief that Jesus was the Messiah. And of course, once they have that, they can then go back to the Bible and find connections and associations and hints and shadows and types 
but it only begins because they already have that as a preconceived conclusion. But mm-hmm. the question is, how did they arrive at that conclusion? How do they know that Jesus was the Messiah? And here they're claiming that these hints and associations and connections will prove that. And I would say that it's almost equivalent to saying that these hints uh, in the Bible about Hanukkah prove that hundreds and hundreds of years later there's going to be a holiday of Hanukkah. I don't think anyone would accept that uh, that direction. And I don't think anyone would suggest that the hints that are found in regards to Hanukkah are prophecies of Hanukkah. Exactly. Hmm. All right. Well, I'm, I'm glad you said that because the first one that we kick off with uh, it's on the list of 365, it's number 180. We're going to be moving forward from there, of course, and, and it deals with Isaiah chapter 11. Now, on the uh, new improved or the new standard, what is it, the new revised standard version that Carmen has uh, supplied to us, and I'll put a link on this post of that as well. It's on her list. It's now 125. And it begins with Isaiah 11 verse 1. Now, this is what Isaiah 11 verse 1 says. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. That's verse 1. Now, the corresponding uh, verse, which is the fulfillment of this uh, apparent prophecy on the list, is Matthew chapter 2, verse 23. It says, And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, He shall be called a Nazarene, Michael. I have gone through, I think, uh, six or seven reputable uh, cross-reference Bibles, and none of them, none, have a reference to the Old Testament. And I find that curious because it says that this was fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, plural, he shall be called a Nazarene. Surely they would jump at the opportunity to put a cross-reference there. Well, that would have been nice. You know, the, the claim here is that this passage in Isaiah is speaking about someone who will be called a Nazarene. Um, that's what the compiler of the list says, mm-hmm. and that's what it says precisely in Matthew chapter 2, verse 23, that the prophet said he will be called a Nazarene. Um, when we read this passage in Isaiah carefully um, and with paying attention to what it actually says, we'll see that it doesn't say anything about someone who will be called a Nazarene. There's there's nothing at all in the Bible, no reference anywhere in the Bible, in the the Hebrew Scriptures, to someone who is supposed to be called or referred to as a Nazarene. Um, The the word here in the Hebrew text is Netzer, um, and Netzer is usually translated as a shoot, so it's basically saying here that there's going to be a, um, a, a staff emerging from the stump of Jesse, Yeshai, who was the mm-hmm. father of David, and a shoot will sprout from his roots. So basically what we're being told here in this first verse is that there will be a special, or it doesn't even say special, but there will be a descendant coming out of Jesse, Yeshai. Um, and we'll see as we go through who that descendant is. But it doesn't say here that this descendant will be called a sprout. It just says that it uses the word sprout as a literary term uh, indicating that it's a descendant. It's someone who will come forth from. 
um, you know, you you could have said um, that that this person will be called Sprout. That's what I guess the 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 uh, claim is here that the, to be called a Nazarene, um, which is the English form of the word Nazare, would mean that it's that the claim is being made that there will be a person who will be called the Sprout. Um, so there is no such. Uh, that's not that's not what it's saying in Isaiah eleven chapter one. What it's saying in Isaiah chapter eleven one is that a sprout will come forth from the rod from the stem of Jesse. Now we know that we know that already. That's I mean we knew that back in back in Samuel. Yes, there was a promise made to David that uh, you know all future kings will descend from him, and I guess one of the most central and clear. Uh, ideas that we have in the Hebrew Scriptures about the Messiah is that the Messiah will have to be a descendant, uh, and the, the, again, the literary term here for descendant is a sprout or a branch, mm-hmm. um, a descendant of David. Uh, but again, the claim here is that someone is going to be called a Nazarene, called a uh, a branch or a sprout. Um, what's peculiar is that Matthew ties this into the fact that Jesus lived in the city of Nazareth. And when we read that, we just have to say, ouch. Um, because, um, you know, it's, it's very clear that Isaiah chapter 11 is not speaking about anyone living in a particular city. Um, these things have absolutely nothing to do with each other. Um, so that's a very peculiar connection to make, um, to say that Isaiah chapter 11 verse 1 is fulfilled with Jesus living in the city of Nazareth. Can I just let me let me just get this straight. Nazareth and Nitzir, are they are they from the same root? Is it is it the same word in Hebrew? Is what is the meaning of well, Nazareth? Well, there's no meaning per se if it was a city in Israel. Um, the way it's pronounced in modern Hebrew is Nazareth, and I guess Nazareth would be related to this word Nazir, a branch or a sprout, but it's not necessarily clear. And what is clear is that the passage in Isaiah is not speaking about a location. It's not speaking about a city. It's mm-hmm. just speaking about someone who will descend from Yeshai, from Jesse. And all we're being told here is that there's going to be a descendant of Jesse. Um, and really all it's saying is that there's going to be this uh, Davidic line. And um, it's strange that the compiler of the list ties this into... Not so much Jesus' genealogy here, but to Jesus' place of residence, um, Mm. that he's living in a city of Nazareth. That seems to be quite disconnected from the fact that he was this messianic figure that we're going to be studying about is a descendant, a branch of Yeshai, of of Jesse. Now, because this verse in Matthew is so peculiar, where it makes the claim that the prophets foretold that he would be called a Nazarene, um, this is often one of the places, one of the cross-references that's given, um, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. But I've seen other Christian cross-references taking you to the book of Judges, um, which takes you to the story of Samson. Judges 13, you know, would be a Nazarite. So mm-hmm. here you have, for example, in Judges 13, verse 5, the mother of Samson, Shimshon, is told, for you will conceive and bear a son. And no razor will come on his head, for the child will be a Nazarite unto God from the womb, and he will begin to deliver Israel out of the hands of the Philistines. Now, this is even a more absurd and obtuse uh, reference than Isaiah chapter 11, because here 
uh, it's a different Hebrew word altogether. Here it's it's not the word Natseret with a tzadi, which is the way it's spelled in Isaiah, and the way the modern city in Israel is called Natseret, but here it's with a Zion, a Nazir. Nazir is the Nazirite who just abstained from wine and getting their hair cut and coming into contact with the dead. And mm-hmm. so because so many Christians were hard-pressed to find where does the where do the prophets speak about someone who will be called a Nazarene because the, there is no place some of them jump to Isaiah 11 some of them jump to Judges 13 Judges 13 is is totally uh irrelevant because it's speaking about a totally different word the word um a Nazarite has nothing to do with someone who is from the city of Nazareth and uh we can see from the context of Judges 13 that it's speaking about a child who'll be instrumental in driving out the Philistines from the land, obviously Mm. nothing to do with Jesus. Um, But it it remains a problematic um, passage, Matthew chapter 2, verse 23. Um, Now, now I've just gone to, in in my New King James Study Bible, I've gone to Matthew chapter 2, verse 23, and you're right, there is a cross-reference there, excuse me, a cross-reference there of Judges chapter 13, verse 5, which takes us to Samson. That is all it has. But what we're really looking for, according to the writer of Matthew, is references by the prophets, plural. So we're looking at uh, multiple references within the prophets saying that he will be called, called a Nazarene because he lived in the town of Nazareth. It's fairly specific. There's no reason to read into that. It it seems to be um, fairly plain in the text. We just don't have that, do we? No. First of all, you don't even have the city of Nazareth mentioned anywhere in the scriptures. Um, There's no mention or reference to this as as a city anywhere in the Hebrew Bible. Um, Is there any reason to believe that uh, Nazareth did actually exist, um, you know, I don't know, 500 years BCE? I don't know. I know that uh, archaeologists have found it um, as a city in the first century. I'm not sure how far back it goes. We know that it was a very very small city. It was not even a city. You'd call it a, a tiny little town. Um, mm. You know, it may have had 100 or 200 people. It wasn't a very big place. Um, but there is no reference. It may have existed 500 BCE, but it's not mentioned anywhere in the Hebrew Bible, and that's why you won't find any reference in any of the prophets saying that someone is going to be, call, be called a Nazarene because they are from the city of Nazareth. Now, because this is so uh, uh, problematic, you do have these multiple references where they try and find some connection to people who have an association with this word, Natseret, or Natser. So the, 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 the first place that we're taken is Isaiah 11, which again doesn't really make much sense because Isaiah 11 is not speaking about someone's place of reference, a residence. And the other place, again, because they are so desperate to find uh, connections, would be Judges 13. But again, I think what you're saying is is very true, that what we don't have is uh, anyone who's called, for whatever reason, we don't have anyone that's called um, a Natser. We just see that the person is is described as uh, a branch, but Hmm. he's not to be called that. Um, now, uh, Carmen did supply on her um, uh, on her new list, the New Revised Standard Version, uh, a passage from the New Testament, John chapter eighteen, verses four to five, uh, and it says that Jesus said to some people, "Whom are you seeking?" And they answered him, "Jesus of Nazareth." 
So here, according to the writer of John, at least, he was known as Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus from the, the town of Nazareth. Uh, she's, she's included that as some sort of a fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. But again, as you pointed out, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1 doesn't say that he shall be called such and such. It's really just talking about the family trace uh, in, in a kind of a literal sense, I suppose. Yes, and, and again, we should just refer back to something we've discussed several times, which is that the, um, all that Isaiah is saying is that this person will be a descendant of Jesse, and the Christian Bible doesn't do a very good job of, of tracing that because all the gospel managed to do in Matthew 1 and Luke chapter 3 is to trace Joseph back to uh, David and his father, Jesse, Yishai. But, you know, unfortunately, they shoot themselves in the foot by then insisting that Joseph was not the father of Jesus. Right. So <laughs> now, now, that's the next one. So we're going to have to... Okay, so... The uh, that one there, we're going to have. I mean, I think it's very fair for anybody to come to the conclusion and say that prophecy does not clearly exist anywhere in the Tanakh. Um, prophets plural, we don't even have one, let alone multiple references there. But the next one on the list, as you just pointed out, a rod out of Jesse, son of Jesse, Yeshai, uh, still in Isaiah chapter eleven, verse one, and she has uh, given us Luke chapter three, verses twenty-three to thirty-two. Uh, which, of course, is the genealogy of Jesus, uh, one of two. And, of course, they are different, one in Matthew and one in Luke. And uh, according to Luke, this is the genealogy of uh, Joseph. It does say uh, it, it begins with um, uh, Jesus being thought that he was the son of Joseph or something like that. Uh, and then it continues on. But you're right. They shoot themselves in the foot by saying, but he is of a virgin birth. And therefore, what is the point of the genealogy? How does that carry weight? Yeah, that's, you know, it's, it's, I would say it's a question mark. Um, and all you really have in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, ultimately, uh, is the idea that the Messiah will descend from Jesse. And that's true. Mm -hmm. We wouldn't dispute that. Um, of course, it doesn't mean that because someone might be a descendant of Jesse that they're the Messiah. I mean, that Jesse and David have many descendants. Um, being a descendant of David is a prerequisite for being the Messiah, but it doesn't make someone the Messiah. So mm. it's sort of hard to understand why this is such an important um, passage. It's not really so much a prophecy about the Messiah fulfilled. It's really a prerequisite of who the Messiah would be. It's interesting also, by the way, that this number 126 here only references Luke chapter 3, now, it's interesting that Luke chapter 3 traces David through his son, Nathan. Mm. And one of the things that's important to remember biblically is that we're told in the uh, scriptures that there's a messianic line that has to go from David through David's son, Solomon. And yes. you, you only find that line in uh, Matthew's genealogy. Um, Luke, yes. for some reason, uh, goes from David through his son, Nathan. Mm. Um, now, I think that what's important for us to realize that this, I mean, we're sort of, we're skirting the real issue here, is that chapter 11, I think we, we mentioned this at the very end of the last show, that I think I actually said, maybe inappropriately, that this is the first genuine, bona fide, uh, star-studded messianic prophecy mm. on the list. It's not really true. And I think that um, I wanted to clarify this because what we should say is that this is really, this chapter 11 of Isaiah 
it's the first real mention in the scripture, clear mention in the scripture, of a messianic prophecy about the person of the Messiah. What's important to remember is that um, the vast majority of passages in the Hebrew scriptures uh, that we call messianic are not really describing the person of the Messiah. They're describing really what the world will look like when the Messiah is here. We had mm-hmm. one of these actually back in Isaiah chapter 2, um, which speaks about the world peace. So one of the uh, you know, features of what the Messianic age will look like is there'll be world peace. Um, so we have hundreds and hundreds of those kinds of prophecies, but they're not specifically about the person of the Messiah. Isaiah 11 is the first time we've come across a real clear, undisputable um, prophecy about the person of the Messiah. Here we're actually describing not just what the messianic age will look like, but it's a passage which speaks very clearly about this person who we refer to as the Messiah. And what's clear in this chapter is that this has not been fulfilled. I mean, we read chapter 11 here, and it basically speaks about a totally transformed world order, which has not happened yet. So even if we want to accept the possibility that Jesus is a descendant of David, um, which is not that clear, but even if we want to accept that, um, the real problem is that this chapter is a chapter which does not apply to Jesus. And what Christians are forced to do is to assert that it will be fulfilled at his second coming. Uh, and this is something that we've, that we've discussed as a, as a common theme that will apply to every single bona fide prophecy. We're going to see that Jesus didn't fulfill one of them, and so Christians have been forced to relegate them to what they uh, claim will be the second coming of the Messiah. Mm-hmm. Well, now what, what we have uh, in the next one is Isaiah 11, verse 2, and what that says is that uh, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And what we have in, uh, in the list as fulfilled prophecies in the New Testament, corresponding uh, verses, Matthew 3, verses 16 and 17, when he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water and behold, the heavens were open to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. You know what that reminds me of, by the way? I'm wondering. It, well, I mean, it, it kind of, it, would, wouldn't that be called a, a corporate revelation for a bunch of people at a particular location to hear uh, the voice of God audibly? I guess it would be. If something like that happened, wouldn't, don't you think the descendants of those who were there would be saying, uh, you know, my great, 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 great grandparents were there, they you know, this is what they said about it, this is what they wrote about it? Well, it's not, well, it, that's true. It's not clear from this passage in Matthew how many people actually would have heard this. Uh, it gives no uh, indication as to how large a crowd that was there. And even if there were 100 people, it doesn't say how many of those people heard this um, this voice. Mm. Um, it could have been, you know, just one person that heard the voice here. Um, so it might have just cl- been John and Jesus. Yeah, it's yeah, true. It's, it doesn't say. Clear. In any case, the, uh, the Spirit descends upon him, uh, so says Matthew, and that, I suppose, is a fulfillment of the prophecy that uh, the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. There you go. Okay, well, again, <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm going to be a stickler uh, to try and really stick to what the Hebrew scriptures say. 
um, the, this 127 on the list says that the anointed one by the Spirit. Now, there's nothing in Isaiah which speaks about the Messiah being anointed by the Spirit. Um, it, 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 that's just not there. This is hmm. just sort of a, uh, uh, a claim that's being made by the maker of the list and uh, certainly something that you could derive from Matthew. But when we read what Isaiah says, Isaiah says nothing about this descendant of uh, Jesse being anointed by the Spirit. What it says in Isaiah 11 is that God's Spirit will rest upon the Messiah, meaning that as any person of God, we saw King David, for example, we're told was filled with the Spirit of God. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. So the Messiah, no less, will be someone who's filled with God's Spirit. Um, so that's important. There's just a distinction between what Isaiah says and what the claim that's being made. And secondly, um, there's no proof that this was the case with Jesus, meaning that uh, Isaiah says that this descendant of Jesse will be filled with the Spirit of God. Um, we don't have any proof, really, that that was uh, so with Jesus. It's just just another example of the New Testament says so. And I think that we've seen this as a repeated theme throughout this list is that there's no real uh, uh, way in which uh, an objective observer can verify uh, the claims being made here. It's not empirically verifiable by someone. It's something that only works once you accept the beliefs of the New Testament. Mm-hmm. I mean, since the New Testament believes that Jesus was this person, the New Testament just simply makes a sweeping claim that Jesus is the one who's filled with the Spirit of God, and they claim anointed by the Spirit of God. But again, we don't have any reason to believe it other than the fact that the New Testament asserts it to be true. And so it becomes sort of circular in terms of the reasoning here. And uh, the next one on the list, his character, wisdom, understanding, counsel, power, knowledge, and fearing Adonai is what on the new list that Carmen has supplied us, the corresponding verses... Matthew 27, verse 28 and 29. And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings uh, that the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Matthew 13, uh, 54. When he had come to his own country, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astounded and said, where did this man get his wisdom and these mighty works? uh, Mark chapter 6, verse 2, and when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things, and what wisdom is this which uh, which has been given to him, such mighty works that are performed by his hands? And Luke chapter 4, verse 22, so all bore witness to him and marveled at the uh, gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? That's not what they should be saying, Michael. (laughs) Didn't we do a program on this recently? Shouldn't they be saying, is this not the kid that was born of the Virgin Mary that was supposed to be assigned to us that was spoken of in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14? (laughs) I guess they should have listened to our show. Well, they, they, <laughs> obviously, it wasn't that clear to them. They, they said, is this not Joseph's son? Uh, that sign went over, over the head. Uh, Luke chapter 4, verse 32. And they were all astonished at his teachings, for his words was with authority. And John chapter 4, verse 23 and 24. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in truth, in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth, Michael. Well, I would, uh, if it's okay, I would add 
to this list, just the next one, because it seems to be really saying the exact same thing. Number 129 speaks about this person having knowledge and fear and inspiration mm-hmm. from God. Um, so I would combine 128 and 129. They're basically saying the same thing. And it's true that, that these are traits, the, the, that Isaiah here is giving us traits that will be true of the Messiah. The, the mm-hmm. Messiah will be wise, will have understanding, counsel, etc. Um, the problem is, again, in terms of trying to evaluate whether this is true uh, for Jesus, we don't know. Meaning that it's, it's not the kind of thing that uh, we today have any evidence of, because it's only the Christian scriptures that are asserting that these are characteristics that apply to Jesus. And we don't know if at the time of Jesus this was so clear to the people either, meaning that uh, I don't know if at the time of Jesus he really was seen as some special genius, uh, as such an unusual uh, person of knowledge and understanding. Um, it doesn't there doesn't seem to be any historical uh, evidence to that. It's not mentioned in any sources outside the Christian scriptures. And uh, so here we're just left with, again, uh, a, a statement that Isaiah makes about the characteristics of the Messiah. And the New Testament just makes the claim that that was true for Jesus. And I would say take it or leave it, meaning that uh, we're really, we, what we come down to is that Jesus must be the Messiah because the New Testament says he's the Messiah. Mm. And, uh, you know... Well, in, in this... Uh, sorry to interrupt, but also... And this is beside the point, uh, but in this uh, in these particular verses of uh, Isaiah chapter 11, verses 2 and 3, it does talk about uh, the Messiah to come having the fear of the Lord. And that, from a Trinitarian perspective, really does throw a spanner in the works that should be mentioned. Yes, I mean, it w- this would have been a great place for Isaiah to say, and he will be God, right? Uh, mm-hmm. if, if, the, if the scriptures are trying to tell us that the Messiah... Um, will be the ultimate uh, source of wisdom in the world because he will be God in the flesh. That would have been a great thing for Isaiah to tell us, to clarify for us. But Isaiah basically teaches us something very different. He says that this person, this descendant of Jesse, will be someone who fears God. Um, and, and therefore, it doesn't really give us any sense that this person will be God. We're told that he will be someone who fears God. Um, mm. So that's an important thing to bear in mind. I would agree. Indeed. The next one on the list uh, would not judge on the basis of external representations. Wow. What would not judge on the basis of external re- representations? It's uh, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 3, which says, His delight is in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears. The verse is John chapter 7, verse 24 corresponding verse which says do not judge according to appearance but judge with righteous judgment also john 8 15 and 16 you judge according to the flesh i judge no one and yet if i do judge my judgment is true for i am not alone but i am with the father who sent me Hmm, michael well again so this is exactly what we had before we have isaiah teaching us that this descendant of jesse will be someone who doesn't judge based upon external representations, meaning that if the person looks uh, like an important person, you'd give this person special credibility, special uh, preferential treatment. Um, So we don't know that Jesus judged like this. We just have the Christian, the New Testament assertion that he did. And the sources are fascinating because in John chapter 7, verse 24, 
it's not a passage which shows that this is the way Jesus judged. It just has him quoting uh, this directive that that's how people should judge others. I mean, that mm-hmm. He's just telling people to act this way. It doesn't mean that he himself necessarily fulfilled that kind of teaching. And mm-hmm. in John chapter 8, um, all you have is Jesus claiming about himself that he judges truthfully. Now, again, that wouldn't be proof that he is someone who judges truthfully. For example... In the Hebrew scriptures, a person wouldn't be considered a prophet simply by claiming to be a prophet. You, you don't necessarily establish your credentials by asserting them yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, so, again, you're left here with um, you know something that is true about the Messiah, that he would be a judge that would judge fairly and without giving preferential treatment. But there's no real proof that this is something that was true of Jesus other than the Christian Bible's claim that it was true of him. Um, Messiah would judge the poor with righteousness. That's the next one. The Messiah would judge the poor with righteousness. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 4. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Wow. Wow. And uh, corresponding verses, according to the list, uh, well, we've got Mark chapter 12, verses 41 to 44, which says, Now Jesus sat opposite the treasury and saw how the people put money into the treasury, and many who were rich put in much. And uh, then there was one poor widow who came and threw in two mites, uh, which, uh, which make a quadrants. So he called his disciples to himself, and he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, that this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury. For they all put in out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. Yeah, I wouldn't make a federal case about this. And I think that, again, um, Isaiah here is speaking about one of the qualities of the Messiah. And, again, there's no proof that it applied to Jesus other than the New Testament assertion, I would just make a minor point and say that the um, reference in Mark chapter 12 doesn't really quite fit what Isaiah is speaking about. Isaiah is speaking about a judge who would not give special preferential treatment to the rich and wouldn't mm-hmm. uh, treat the poor with without equity. It's really speaking in Isaiah about judging disputes between people and court cases and it's not really speaking about uh, evaluating the quality of someone's actions, which is what Marx uh, speaks about. But again, it would so be... So he's talking about judging, judging people uh, equally, but not according to their status. Exactly. It's not yeah. speaking about how we size people up. It's speaking about actually judging disputes, which is what a judge does. Hmm. Um, what blows my mind, <laughs> I've been sort of jumping out of my seat is that on this list, you know, it has all of these sort of fuzzy uh, characteristics of this descendant of Jesse, that he'll be a nice judge and he'll be wise. But what he, what the list maker skips are verses 6 through 9 in Isaiah, which is the real juicy stuff. Meaning that what the entire thrust of this passage is that this wise and righteous judge is not going to be someone who's living at any time in history. The, the passage in Isaiah describes precisely what the world's going to look like when this particular judge is here. Mm. And those verses, 6 through 9, make it very clear that this has just not happened yet. We're still awaiting the days when the lion will lie down with the lamb. 
Um, I remember Woody Allen once said, but the lamb won't get much sleep. But (laughs) you have this this amazing, amazing picture of a transformed world, a world Mm. where... In verse 9, we're told there's not going to be any more injury or destroying in all of my sacred mountain, God says, because the earth will be filled with the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. That's the essence of the messianic vision in the Jewish Bible, a transformed world where all of humanity comes to a knowledge of God and all of humanity comes to live at peace with each other. That's what Mm. Isaiah chapter 11 is describing. That's the, the essence, the guts, the core of this chapter and it's been basically ripped out of this list. It's not mm. mentioned. It's not. They're, they're sort of uh, avoiding it because it it sort of gives lie to this entire uh, claim that Isaiah 11 somehow is fulfilled in Jesus. We know one thing: that whoever Isaiah chapter 11 is speaking about, we haven't seen him yet. He hasn't come mm. yet because none of this mm. has happened. This is something we're simply waiting for. This is part of a bigger picture, and the bigger picture certainly, uh, undisputably, has not occurred. There is one left in Isaiah chapter 11, uh, and that is verse 10. The Messianic prophecy supposedly fulfilled is that the Gentiles will seek him. Uh, Isaiah eleven ten says, and in that day there shall be a root of Jesse who will stand as a banner to the people, for the Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. The corresponding verse is in the New Testament, according to the list, Matthew 12, verses 15 to 21. But when Jesus knew it, (laughs) he withdrew from there, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all. Yet he warned them not to make him known, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel, nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoking flax he will not quench, till he sends forth justice to victory, and and in his name Gentiles will trust. Now, that's a isn't that a different passage of Isaiah? Yeah, they're, they're mixing up a few different passages in Isaiah. Um, they're making a bit of a, a, a taking a mixture here. I mean, I think That's the, the odd. I think the the part that they're asking us to focus on though is where um, in Matthew where it speaks about somehow the, this relationship to the nations who will be seeking him. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, well, we do have uh, it also includes Acts chapter thirteen verses forty seven to forty eight. Uh, for so the Lord has commanded us, I have set you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. Now, again, that's, that's, a, different, <laughs> that's a different passage in Isaiah. That's Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6, I think. It goes on to say, now, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and they glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Hmm. Well... <laughs> <laughs> this is a very this is this is a, a, again a central part of the messianic program uh, is being described here, but I think it's being misunderstood. The one thing that that we have to realize is that the Messiah, uh, in the biblical sense, in the biblical scheme, is the King of the Jews. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, you can't separate the King from his nation. Um, I think what Christianity often does is to do that. They sort of take Jesus and he becomes uh, an entity unto himself and his relationship to the people is not really that critical but in the in the biblical scheme in the Hebrew scriptures this this Messiah is described consistently as being the king 
of the Jewish people, the leader of the Jewish people. Mm-hmm. So he functions as part of a nation. You can't separate the role of the Messiah really from the role of the people when you speak about what effect the Messiah is going to have in the world. Um, he's really not f- functioning on his own independently. He really functions as part of this organic connection to a people. And one of the things that the Bible tells us consistently about the nation of Israel is that we're going to have a universal mission. The very first thing that God says to Abraham is that through your descendants, through your people, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Mm-hmm. And then in, in Exodus chapter 19, right before the Torah is revealed, God says to the Jewish people, you're going to be to me a holy nation and a kingdom of priests, meaning that we're going to have a priestly function vis-a-vis the rest of the world. And then the Bible repeats several ways in which this is going to take place. Isaiah speaks about the nation of Israel as a light to the nations. In Isaiah 43, we're called God's witnesses. These are all tasks and uh, things that the nation is supposed to be doing. And the Messiah basically is the captain of that ship. But it's not that the nations will necessarily seek specifically uh, the Messiah. When it speaks about seeking the Messiah, the King of the Jews, really what it's speaking about is seeking the Jews, seeking the, the nation of the Jews. That's why Zechariah chapter 8 says that in this age where the world is going to be returning to God, turning to God, it speaks about ten people from every nation of the world grabbing the hold of a Jew, a Jewish person, mm. and saying, we want to follow you, we've come, to, we, we want saying, to follow now you. Saying, now we know that God is with you. As a people. And mm. Isaiah chapter 61 says, right, that in Isaiah we were told that the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, is to be a light to the nations. In Isaiah chapter 61 we're told, and one day the nations will come your light. So it's not as if the Messiah does this as an individual separate, stripped out from the nation. Yeah, the Messiah is, is the leader of the nation, and this task of bringing Torah to the world is a task that's placed upon the entire people. And so uh, this is clearly, again, a future messianic prophecy. It has not yet happened. Mm-hmm. We don't see, uh, for example, the complete turning of the world to the Jewish people, to the nation of Israel. We're still, by and large, a pariah in the world. Um, I would say that we're beginning to see uh, a a slow turning in this direction by individuals throughout the world. We're seeing a trickling now of people that are turning toward Israel, but we're very, very, very far from a massive turning of the world towards the light of Israel. Mm. And so clearly this is a prophecy about the Messianic Age, that will include the Messiah, but it hasn't happened. We're not there yet. Uh, you know, where Zechariah chapter 14 tells us that in that day, God's name will be one and he will be one. That mm. We're still waiting for that. That mm. has not yet happened. And may it be soon. The next one on the list is in Isaiah chapter 12. We're out of 11. We're in Isaiah chapter 12. And this would have done well in our, in our Christmas specials, I think. But uh, in any case, uh, this is a favorite among the Messianics, uh, I do recall. This is uh, verse 2. It says, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For Yah, the Lord, is my strength and my song. He also has become my salvation. And if memory serves me correctly in the Hebrew, it says he has become my Yeshua. Michael. That's exactly what it says. <laughs> it, takes us to, uh, it takes us to Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. And uh, it says, And she will bring forth a son. 
and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save. But that's obviously not what it says. You, you will call his name Yeshua, for he will save his people from their sins. Thoughts? Okay, this <laughs> this is a big one. Um, <laughs> first of all, again, if we read Isaiah carefully, and we should do that. Uh, the, these are words of God, and it behooves us to read them carefully. Um, in Isaiah, no one is called Yeshua. This is sort of similar to this thing about the Nazarene, which, the, you know, the, the, no one is called a Nazarene. And in this passage, no one is called Yeshua. You know, they sort of walk away from here thinking that, you know, there's going to be a person who is called Yeshua. Um, that's simply not what this passage is saying. The, the passage is saying very clearly that Hashem, the Lord, the Almighty, is the one who brings about the salvation of the Jewish people. Um, it's not speaking about anyone other than God, the Creator, who is the cause of the salvation. And what's important to understand, and this I think is often missed by Christian readers, is that the simple understanding of what this word means is very different in a Hebrew biblical consciousness to a Christian biblical consciousness. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, which is where they reference this, uh, his name, Jesus is called that name because in the Hebrew form, Yeshua, is his job description in a sense. And it says mm -hmm. there very clearly, he'll be called Yeshua because he will save his people from their sins. I mean, that in the Christological way of looking at this passage, um, salvation really deals with forgiveness from sin, redemption from sin, atonement from sin. That's how they see salvation. Um, mm. When Christians say, are you saved? They're specifically asking about, are, have you been rescued from your sin state? Mm. But in the Hebrew scriptures, that's not what the word salvation means. And all you need to do is get a concordance and you can look up. There are literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of passages where this word appears, and it's very clear that it doesn't deal with being rescued from your sins. Throughout the Hebrew scriptures, uh, salvation really deals with um, the rescue from physical or political danger. Mm. Um, you see, for example, in Exodus chapter 14 and 15, at the parting of the sea, so in Exodus 14 verse 30, it says, God saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians. And when they sang the song in Exodus 15, chapter 15, verse 2, they said, The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Meaning that mm. God causes the salvation of the people, not by forgiving their sins, but by rescuing them from their enemies. You see, for example, in Deuteronomy 22, verse 27, about the girl who was found in the field, this betrothed damsel, and she cries out, but there was no one to save her. Again, it's referring to rescuing her from physical danger from her attacker. Throughout mm -hmm. the entire book of Judges, by the way, you have God raising up saviors to save the Jewish people from their enemies. Judges chapter 6, we read already once before the story of Gideon. And he was told that he'll save Israel from the hands of the Midianites. Uh, interestingly, by the way, I always like to point out Psalm 20 which speaks about God saving his Messiah, which is an interesting thing, that the Messiah himself is saved in verse 6, chapter 20 in Psalms. Right? I know that the Lord saves his anointed one. He saves his Messiah. But throughout mm -hmm. the Bible, I mean, there are literally hundreds and hundreds of passages where it makes it very clear that salvation is from our physical and political danger. And what's interesting is that 
the concept of salvation in the Christological sense is invisible. You can't see if someone has redeemed you from your sins. You have to basically accept it on faith. You don't see in the heavenly realms that your sins have been wiped away. Mm-hmm. But salvation from enemies, salvation from uh, physical uh, oppressors is something that can be seen, it can be experienced. So that's why in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 10, it says that the, the entire world will see the salvation of God, mm. something which is visible, specifically it's visible. So um, here, again, no one is called Yeshua in this verse. It's simply saying that God is going to be the one who brings about the salvation of the Jewish people. It's not speaking about the Messiah doing it. The Messiah really never functions independently of God. You know, when we speak about the exodus from Egypt, you know, if we ask the question, who redeemed the Jews from Egypt, the wrong answer to give is Moses. Moses was not the redeemer. God redeemed us from Egypt. Moses was simply the figurehead, the person that was representing God on earth. But Moses didn't do anything in reality. It was all God. Uh, That's why at the Passover Seder, when we recount the story of the Exodus, we don't mention Moses in the entire Haggadah, the book that we read on the evening of Passover, Mm. because Moses didn't redeem us from Egypt. Moses was just the puppet at the end of the strings. And the, the person pulling the strings is the Almighty. Mm. We've done Isaiah chapter 11, and we've done that one in, uh, in 12. chapter 12. What's the next one? Messiah would have the key of David. Is that a fun one, or shall we shall we save it for next week? Well, let's save it. I think we'll save okay, it. Okay, we'll, we'll save it. Okay. It's just, just the way that God will save the Messiah. We will save yes. it. <laughs> we'll save this reference. Okay. Next week, we're going to be kicking off in Isaiah in the chapter of the 20s and so on into the 30s. We're going to be in Isaiah for quite some time, I do believe. And don't get too impatient, listeners. We will be getting to Isaiah chapter 53 eventually, so it's okay. (laughs) But thank you, my friend, Rabbi Michael Skobek of JewsForJudaism.ca, JewsForJudaism.ca, JewsForJudaism in Canada, for coming back on the program. My great pleasure as always, Jono. Always wonderful to have you. And until next time, dear listeners, be blessed and be set apart by the truth of our Father's Word. Shalom. Thank you.